0: We are beautiful, we're irrefutable, we are omnipotent, we're militant, resilient, we're autonomous, we are the consequence, we are consciousness. We are the heartbeat of every freedom fighter who came before us, and all will come
1: after. Feral, adjective, especially of an animal in a wild state, after escape from captivity or domestication.
0: Alcatraz, Arab Spring, 1 billion rising. Freedom schools, the maroons, We've been rising since the dawn of creation. in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Athupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing White supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence, in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please... Practice excellent self and community care while listening. Where we can all attain emancipation from oppression, break the chains from Haiti to Tibet and worldwide. Don't forget the resistance in our roots and resilience in our breath, in the blood of our veins, liberation
1: runs. We are standing on the shoulders of the ancient ones.
0: Have you ever sensed that science, quote in quote in the singular and monolithic, fronts as objective at the expense of the very humility that legit knowing is actually contingent upon, coming from your most logical and wise self, not some kind of anti-intellectual cop-out. If you've been sleeping on all of the decolonial feminist scholarship on the philosophy of science that's proliferated in the past half a century at this point, Let's get you caught up on some of these gems. If you've ever seen somebody weaponizing the language of logic, of reason, of objectivity, or of science, let's go there. Because unfortunately, that so often right can be quite sketchy, but so many of our folks within the mainstream don't necessarily have the language to be able to parse out what on earth is actually taking place in those kinds of conversations and moves. So for example, I'd like for us to actually begin by getting into it through looking at some words that Professor Dr. Kim Talbert has shared with us around this topic in particular. So she is the author of this legendary text, Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science which was published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2013. And if you're not familiar with her work, right, in terms of decolonial critiques of scientism, I really want to encourage you to scope out some of her publications. Why don't we just listen to an excerpt of her talking about this for a couple of minutes, and then we can continue. Let's see what she has to say.
1: Uh, so I'm really, really leery of this language of who's who's rational and who's not rational, who's logical and who's illogical. I think a lot of times that language is employed to discount critiques that are really critiques of power. And so I'll just, you know, focus on indigenous communities. A lot of times when we are making noise about the unjustness of a scientific project or a technological project, we are critiquing power. It is a very sophisticated political critique. Scientists and engineers don't want to hear it. So where do they go? You're irrational. You're anti-science. You're backwards. So that is a form of uh, they're really taking refuge in the privilege that has accrued to them as scientists. And I see this again, because it's the same basic conversation about who's rational and who's not as a new and emerging form of whiteness. And so when I use the term whiteness, again, I'm not talking about skin color. I'm not necessarily talking about ancestry from Europe, although I would say most white people are (laughs) the way we think about that racial category, but if that notion of rationality is kind of being conflated with uh, that category, then you can see how other people can kind of take up that that discourse of of who's more rational and civilized, even though their skin color might be different or their phenotype might be different and they they can try to get access to some of the privileges of whiteness. So, we may need a new word for that. Uh, Cheryl Harris, who's a critical race scholar, we were sitting, we were at a uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, panel at at DePaul uh, Law School a few years ago. And she, she said, I'm thinking a lot in terms of post-racial whiteness right now. And everybody in the room was like, what? Uh, they don't want to see whiteness as a category or an idea disconnected from race, meaning biological race or phenotype. People were very uncomfortable with that. And she said, I don't really have an example for that. And I said, I have an example, scientists. You can have a whole bunch of brown and black scientists sitting around the table. I had just, in fact, come from a National Institutes of Health meeting where I felt so incredibly oppressed and marginalized. And there was a whole bunch of African scientists there. There were probably even some indigenous scientists there. But they were taking up this language, you know, this language of rationality and and marginalizing anybody at the table who had a critique of the genome science that was going on. And I'm like...
0: Isn't that interesting? Let's actually look at one of the particular quotes that she just shared with us. So she says, quote, I'm really, really leery of this language of who's rational and who's not rational, who's logical and who's illogical, I think a lot of times that language is employed to discount critiques that are really critiques of power. I see this again because it's the same basic conversation about who's rational and who's not rational as a new and emerging form of whiteness. Have any of y'all heard anything like this before? I know that some of y'all have that work in the so-called natural sciences in particular. Do you see how she's making an important observation about the way that discourses of whiteness often front as scientific, right? They masquerade as rational and as objective. And actually, what are they doing? What's the function that's getting performed ideologically actually, right, it's a silence of critiques of power. So like she was talking about in particular, right, when indigenous folks and communities of color are like, fuck this genome project, this is actually super unethical, right? What's the response? Oh my goodness, these primitive heathens, they're so anti-science, right? So this is why she says we really need to be on the lookout for the way that this language of objectivity, right, and rationale is getting weaponized because so often it's actually just to diminish what she called here in that excerpt we just listened to sophisticated critiques, especially that BIPOC communities are holding. And so I do want to give another shout out she actually just this year, so in 2020, did a rad address at Reed College that's called Science Versus the Sacred. So if you haven't listened to that address of Dr. Talbert's, I really encourage you to check it out. Um, so like many of y'all already know, right, for folks that have either listened to the podcast episode I did with her a few years back or have, right, gotten into some of her work in Liberation Spring classes over the years, she's super critical of the English tradition spirit and sacred, and in part because of some of the dichotomies that are baked into the English language that have us really deeply misunderstanding those kinds of concepts at their core. So she's not saying there's science over here and there's the sacred over here, just to make crystal clear, we'll elaborate on that in a minute. Um, But what are some other examples of what it is that she was just naming for us, how so often when, right, BIPOC and oppressed communities are sharing sophisticated critiques of power, what gets weaponized against us? Oh, you, right, primitive, savage, heathen, right, you're just anti-science. Uh, how about right the 30-meter telescope, the TMT project on Big Island in Hawaii? This is one of the most obvious examples of this kind of scientistic language getting weaponized in patently oppressive ways. So if any of y'all are familiar with, which I know some of you are, right, the contestation on Hawaii Island in the Hawaiian archipelago around the TMT project, So often, what has happened has been, right, corporations that want, right, to push forward some kind of project, could be a development project for their own fame or fortune, their own social or finance capital, right, they pretend. Like, they monopolize science. That's why I started off sharing science that's singular, not sciences that would be plural, right, more realistic, right, and fronting as, right, somehow, right, monolithic, when in actuality, I'm a social scientist, for those of us also on this call that are scientists, we know that There's plenty of contestation within the academic fields of the so called natural sciences and the so called social sciences today. So, whenever we hear, right, some organization or some entity saying, I am going to tell all of y'all what is science and what isn't, and if you disagree with me, you're just anti-science. That's a really sneaky, manipulative move that we need to be able to see through immediately. And again, this is why, right, in the context of, right, the 30-meter telescope on Big Island, Thousands of scientists, right, have, right, signed on to letters saying, hi, we're scientists, we do science, and fuck this colonial project, right? So again, if y'all ever hear people saying, I'm a scientist, look at my white lab coat, trust me, y'all need to shut up if you have questions, I really invite us to look to some of the potentially, right, colonial and cisheteropatriarchal undertones of those kinds of moves. So that kind of begs the question, what on earth is scientism more broadly? So at its most basic, it's a quote, excessive belief in the power of scientific knowledge and techniques. So again, an excessive belief in the power of scientific knowledge and techniques so the thing is, what I was kind of playfully making fun of earlier, this notion that we see in the mainstream all the time of there being science, right, in this monolithic way, as if it's simple, as if people know or less everything that we need to know the mysteries of the galaxies have already been answered right that's actually deeply anti-scientific alas though many folks are way less familiar right with the historical and contemporary biases in the so-called natural sciences than they are of biases in other settler colonial fields. And I want us to be able to know how to spot scientism so that it can't continue harming our communities the way that it has and it is. So let's get into a little primer on scientism as a core component of the colonial mentality that's endemic to U.S. empire today. So, to back it up for a minute, how about we just pause, right? Because I know this is a deep topic for so many of us. Y'all might have been invalidated based off of, right, this sophistry, right, or these kinds of, right, anti intellectual forms of bullying that front is intellectual. Maybe you've seen people delegitimated in this way before. So, who taught you about science? What are some of your earliest associations with science? Do you think of stars or planets or galaxies or NASA, maybe medicine or hospitals, mad scientists, perhaps? Beaker and Bunsen, Carl Sagan, the magic school bus taking you into a cell. So, One thing that it's really important to acknowledge as we dive into this is, right, within the mainstream languaging in the settler colonial U.S., people talk about a distinction in the sciences, right? Thank you, Natasha, dissecting animals. Exactly. Like, let's actually be honest about what we're really talking about. So, right, they talk about the social sciences over here and the natural sciences over here, right? Also known as the hard and soft sciences. Any gendered assumptions that y'all can infer there? Anyone? Anyone? Like, which sciences would be hard? Who goes there? Do you see how objective this trash is already? (laughs) So the thing is, right, one of the major ways that scientism is harming our communities that I really want us to be able to spot as readily as possible is related to who gets to define science to begin with, which is why I was asking you some of these questions about your baseline associations before doing this deep dive. Because you know what? Corporations and special interests regularly try to dominate mainstream definitions of science. So again, taking it back to the example that, right, we started off with related to the 30-meter telescope, somebody's trying to do a thing Forcefully, and that quite often is neo colonial. And if anybody takes issue, they're like, I'm a scientist, you're anti science, get away from me, you primitive, right? If only that was being hyperbolic, but this is actually happening all the time, <laughs> right? So again, they want to do something that they call science as if they get to monopolize what that means, right? And any of the rest of us that might have some healthy criticism or critique or skepticism, they're like, you heathens, so anti-progress. And some of y'all might be noticing this is super similar to some weed pulling we were doing earlier in the season around techno-optimism, and techno-fundamentalism, right? So this is one of the reasons why um, I really appreciate, right, Professor Chris Hedges' languaging, right, in the title of his book, I Don't Believe in Atheists, that is a book about the rise of secular fundamentalism, because the thing is here, right, some people, millions of people within the mainstream colonial culture still want to pretend like they're neutral and they're objective and like they don't have a view right they're espousing this god-like view that's supposedly above right and privileged and on a pedestal beyond right any of us that actually have skin in the game right are actually truthfully naming our positionalities <clears throat> so for example if you're like hey, shouldn't we be less wasteful? You know, like not mining for so-called rare earth minerals, for unnecessary gadgets and other extractive industries that are desecrating our earth. Uh, And then, right, maybe secular fundamentalists, right, that could label themselves atheists might be like, there's an app for that, right? Or look at carbon markets. There are solutions. There will be some techno fix. Scientists have got us. And then maybe you, right, being someone that cares about the earth, are like, hang on a second, where will the raw materials come from for that? And then, right, what's the response that we so often get? Again, heathens, you're so anti-science, right? Without recognizing what's the subtext going on here, right? What these secular fundamentalists are so often doing is they're actually mystifying the history and the politics of right scientific fields in this way that's actually mythological, right? Where people are imbuing the so-called natural sciences with unrealistic powers and truth value that doesn't actually exist in reality. And this is one of the reasons why research is a four-letter word in many BIPOC communities, poor communities, mad, disabled, and otherwise oppressed communities, because when we take seriously the history and the contemporary practices of sciences, there is absolutely nothing objective about them. So this would be one of the reasons why The Zapatistas, for example, have been very explicit, right, in encouraging people to, right, in this languaging here, right, decolonize science. And why would, right, the EZLN have, right, a serious interest in this? Why don't we actually look at a little bit of their rationale for putting on a conference in 2017, at Universidad de la Tierra, University of the Earth, uh, actually around this topic of decolonizing science in particular. So you can see here, right, that folks, and again, quoting from this article said, um, in particular, that they know that, right, sciences have been instrumental in not only the dissolution of the sovereignty of indigenous peoples, but that they can potentially be instrumental in returning sovereignty to currently colonized peoples. So just to read a little bit of an excerpt, right, uh, from this article, it says, although it might Seem tangential the struggle to decolonize knowledge is part and parcel of the Zapatistas broader project of resisting indigenous genocide neoliberal capitalism and political repression right so the Zapatistas actually asked hundreds of scientists that came to this gathering a few years ago they said uh So scientists, we ask you, according to your studies, why is this happening specifically, right, the devastation to the earth, right, and to oppressed peoples throughout the world? Why does all this happen and who is responsible? We've come to hear you and bring this knowledge to the people, our communities, saying specifically uh, that it's necessary, right, for people to really move beyond some notion, right, of sciences as objective to be able to make space to be more truthful about, right, who's actually even designing scientific studies and to achieve what objectives to begin with. So I'll read another, right, little blurb about this conference that they put on advocating that we take seriously scientism, right? So first off, it was called Conciencias, amazing. So Las Conciencias, the title of the conference, brings together the Spanish words for science and awareness, the moniker pinpoints the conference's dual purpose. First, the Zapatistas convened the meeting to critically explore the ways in which science has historically been a social endeavor largely devoid of consciousness, a project in the service of capital, an endeavor that contributes to the marginalization of indigenous peoples, throughout the world. Second, the conference is a space of dialogue to explore the counter-hegemonic potential of science how can its power be harnessed to identify the cracks in the walls of capitalism and expand upon them, leading to its dissolution and the resurgent sovereignty of indigenous peoples? So if you're not familiar with this event that took place, I would really encourage you to check it out. Um, It's an incredibly sort of visionary example of some of the more interesting thinking taking place related to the science today if you ask me. But more broadly, the Zapatistas are drawing upon so much incredible work that has come before. So certainly from indigenous scientists like Professor Gregory Cajete, read the author of the legendary text, Native Science, Natural Laws of Interdependence, so if you're not familiar with his work and that book in particular, I really encourage you to check it out, Um, and of course, right, the legendary, right, UCLA professor, Dr. Sandra Harding, right, so for example, in her text, is science multicultural, post-colonialism's? Feminisms and Epistemologies, which was published by Indiana University Press in 1998. So, taking it back for quite some time, so many folks have been asking these kinds of questions. So, also here, right, Dr. Helen Longinow's text that was published by Princeton University Press in 1990 Science as Social Knowledge. Values and objectivity in scientific inquiry also really encouraged us to acknowledge values are intrinsically embedded in the very questions that even get asked by so-called natural scientists. So if we just pretend like somehow that's not real, that most assuredly doesn't just make people objective, right? We don't just get to designate ourselves objective because we think that sounds fancy. Although, unfortunately, millions of people throughout the country are actually doing that today. So that's why... I'm sharing some of these texts because it's really important for us to be able to see through that, especially if anybody might be bullying you or someone you know using some of that kind of rationale. So another one of the most legendary texts within this field, right, also from Professor Sandra Harding, is called The Science Question in Feminism, which was published by Cornell University Press. She and I have also had the pleasure to connect at multiple feminist philosophy scholarly conferences where we've both been presenting research back in the day. If you're not familiar with her work, I really encourage y'all to check it out. Um, And I will just share maybe one more of hers for the moment because it's so important for us to be conversant in. And so that would be her indispensable 1991 book called Whose Science, Whose Knowledge? Thinking from Women's Lives that was published by Cornell University Press. And I bring this in again because so often conversations about these topics are just non-existent within the mainstream. It's like the mainstream in the US isn't even where so much of this feminist scholarship was in 1990 right and that's actually really harmful for our communities to not be asking these questions to just uncritically right allocate power and expertise to authority figures without recognizing their grant money came from somewhere right where did that grant money come from what questions are getting funded which questions aren't getting prioritized right and you can even see here Right in one of the reviews of that book of hers, right, some languaging right from Science, arguably one of the two most prestigious scientific journals in the world. And what did this right Science reviewer say about that text of Dr. Harding's? "Quote: This is an important book that has much to offer practicing scientists." But probably will not be read by many of them. That's a shame because its bold claims are usefully unsettling and its argument begs for engagement. One of the basic messages of whose science, whose knowledge, that all fields of natural science are best analyzed from within the social sciences of which they're logically a part rather than taken as external models for the social sciences, has potential consequences for most, perhaps all, scientific practice. Do you see that? And the Pais sharing super relevant to conversations I'm having right now, thank you for the book recommendations, you're welcome. Yeah, it's incredibly relevant uh, for so many dialogues that are taking place right now. And frankly, one of the reasons why I bring this up is because so often, and I'll put this back up for folks that have just come through, uh, um, this is actually some of the languaging that so-called men's rights activists are using today, right? It's like they've tried to dominate the language of skepticism, and then in using the language of skepticism, they're just promoting these biases that are masquerading as objective, but because they're like, oh no, I'm objective, y'all are subjective, a lot of people legit get flummoxed and they don't know what to do with that, right? And again, when I see that, here I am gnawing my arm off, it's so frustrating because if people were even in the place of so much of this feminist scholarship from the 90s, this wouldn't be happening. But it's like in so many of these conversations on social media, on the internet, in our communities, people aren't at the place of what feminist conversations, right? We're looking at scholastically in the 90s. They're still behind that, right? And so we're still stuck in certain impasses that don't have to be intractable, right? And so, you know, it's also really important for me to acknowledge, right, how ridiculous it is that, right, scientists, right, in the so-called natural sciences could be, right, and more so actually just opportunists in the mainstream culture that are using the language of science as some bolstering of claims they're making, not even necessarily a lot of our loved ones that are in the natural sciences, Right, if they're speaking English, maybe they're in the settler colonial US, and they have a raced, a gendered, a sexed, a classed body, they're a citizen or maybe a non citizen of a nation or a nation state. For them to be pretending to have some godlike view in the 2020 Gregorian year, right, or pretending to be neutral is actually, I'm going to use a strong word really intentional here, it's pathetic from an epistemological perspective, right? It's astoundingly lazy in that way. And so, again, I actually am a social scientist, and so I'll share for folks that haven't been trained in certain research methods, right, if you actually want to be able to arrive at results, right, when you're conducting a study that have any semblance of accuracy What do you do, right? There are rigorous processes that we're ostensibly supposed to engage in devising methods and methodologies that ensure that we're naming as clearly as possible any bias that we're bringing to the table And why? Not just some weird performance like you see in some sort of PC spaces where people are like, I am this, I am that, these are my identities. No, it's because then you correct for those biases to the best of your ability. So when these folks that are like, I'm just rational, I'm just objective, the rest of y'all are anti-science, right? When they pretend like they don't have a bias, you know what that impedes them from doing? correcting for their biases, right? So that's one of the reasons why scientism is so dangerously anti-intellectual and why we need to be able to name it for what it is. Because again, so often it's either people that are trying to engage in some kind of intellectual bullying, right? Corporations that are trying to sell us something that are hoping if they just, right, target any critiques as anti-science, that'll shut people up, that can't continue to shut people up. So we need to be able to see what's going on rhetorically there, right? Uh, And so, you know, I would also really want to mention another, right, legend, right, in this field that some of y'all actually might not be familiar with, right, who is one of the, creators, actually, of India's first supercomputer. So if you're not familiar with Dr. C.K. Raju, please give yourself the gift of checking out some of his texts or of at least, say, listening to some of his lectures that are available for free online. So one of his texts that I've pulled up for you to have a look at now is called The Eleven Pictures of Time. The Physics, Philosophy, and Politics of Time Beliefs. Now, this is incredibly relevant here because so often, right, time is presumed to be objective when in actuality there's nothing objective about the Gregorian calendar. And on that front, I could ask you, does anyone know, so why does February only have 28 days? Might that have anything to do with, oh, I don't know, the ego of an emperor who wanted the month named after him to have 31 days, like the names, right, of other emperors that got made into months who had 31 days instead of 30. Right. There's history to calendars that really merits noticing and that aren't all imperialist. Um, So Professor Raju is absolutely one of the folks that's done some of the most work globally to expose some of these ridiculous biases. So another text of his that's legendary that I just pulled up here for you to have a look at is called The Cultural Foundations of Mathematics. And he is especially one of the folks that is most renowned for helping people understand that, spoiler alert, who's surprised, let's be real, European stool calculus from South Asians, right, what today would be considered present-day India, but so often in these whitewashed, revisionist, Eurocentric histories People literally pretend like Europeans invented calculus. Uh, And so if you want to learn with a little more rigor than that, his work is really what's up. I'll just share actually a couple more texts of his around this as well. So how about this piece, Is Science Western in Origin?, right, if you're not familiar with some of the publishing, right, from the so-called Global South, right, on this question, there is a ton for us to look at, right, and so let's catch up, right, of course, knowledge production is not monopolized by the Global North in the least, (laughs) so we'd definitely be remiss to only be, right, talking with folks in the so-called Global North around a topic such as this, Um, and In particular, on this front, I also have to do a shout-out to his text, Euclid and Jesus. Um, And you might wonder, right, who is that black woman on the cover of his book, Euclid and Jesus? So I bring this up because, right, like I mentioned to y'all, actually, uh, was it just last week when I was talking about, right, Hypatia, the largest feminist philosophy journal on Turtle Island, Um, that I've had the pleasure to be able to write, connect with a lot of authors from and attend their 25th anniversary conference, right? Hopatia was living and working and sharing her brilliance in where? Present-day Egypt. So why is it, right? This is a classic example, right? In so many of these revisionist, Eurocentric, right, forms of storytelling, right, or even in Hollywood movies, is Hypatia depicted as this white woman, right? Because if we want to be honest, right, than any of these immediate jumps to, oh, no, Hapeshi was definitely white or Hapatia was definitely black, right? One, it's reading backwards in time categories that are used today that weren't even used during her lifetime. And as well, right, it doesn't make space to honor, right, so much ambiguity that is rich in nuance for us to contend with if we don't just jump to these ridiculous conclusions the way that Eurocentrism has so consistently modeled for us. And so around that, I really also want to right, bring in his work here because I know that for a lot of folks right, looking to so much of right the history of ancient Greek classics has led us to realize, oh wow, what a lot of people think is right, ancient Greek say scientific traditions has so so clearly just been stolen from Egypt, from South Asia, and from, right, the Swana region, Southwest Asia, Northern, right, Africa more broadly. And so if people aren't even engaged in any of the myriad scholarship around this contestation, please get with the times. It's incredibly important. Yeah, we rise production sharing. So affirming to hear you mention CK Raju, um, thinking together, decolonizing time lecture. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, and so also on this front, I'm just going to read a little bit of a description of this text, right, to give y'all a little more specific as, specifics as to what I'm talking about here, right? So Raju shares, Euclid is celebrated as the father of geometry, an author of the elements, a book once revered like the Bible, but now a school text, Strangely, Greek manuscripts don't mention Euclid but speak anonymously of the, quote, author of the elements, end quote. Did Euclid exist? Was the real author of the elements a woman, Hypatia? Was she black? So the mystery geometry of black Egypt aimed to arouse the soul and prove equity as in Plato's story of Socrates and the slave boy early Christians had similar beliefs about the soul, but the church changed Christian doctrine to enable its priests to rule. When pagans resisted, the church retaliated violently. It smashed their temples, burnt their libraries, cursed the early beliefs about the soul, and banned philosophy. This plunged Christendom into the Dark Age, but catalyzed the Islamic Golden Age. Right? So really talking about right, the Way that, again, the cultural history of math, right, that Raju and so many other scholars, right, have detailed so carefully, show that, right, so much Christian dogma is wrapped up in storytelling related to the origins of science and math more broadly. And I'm just going to share maybe one more text for the moment. I'm trying very hard to not just do a lit review with y'all right now, but there's so much epic material that I really, really want y'all to be familiar with if you're not already. So I will just share one more text. But that also gets into some of this history. And this is a legendary, right, classic in the field, right, that was published by Duke University Press, right? It's Professor Walter Mignolo's The Darker Side of Western Modernity. Are any of y'all familiar with that piece? Um, and I also bring it up because again, unfortunately, within the mainstream culture, right, people really haven't yet confronted in twenty twenty in the Gregorian year in the settler colonial u s, right, any of these substantial questions about the whitewashing of the history of science and math, um, and in a way that, of course, continues to rob. South Asia, right, the Swana region and other parts of the world, right, of the reality of the innovations that we have contributed, right, to science and math. Um, Let alone, my goodness, if we want to talk about, right, in the context of wayfinding and wayfaring, right, navigational brilliance and genius from so many other parts of the planet. Also, Oceania, for sure, right, we could talk about other regions, too, that are just completely invisibilized so that this mythology, right, about science can continue in the mainstream culture unabated, where folks are like, oh, you know, it's just a white thing. And so instead of defaulting to that ridiculously anti-intellectual stance, right, where, again, people are reading modern categories like white and black, right, and other binaries backwards in time prior to their origins, right, again, we can be more rigorous and on point than that. So we can set that down. Um, And so do you see here... Right, in terms of so much that we've gotten into related to scientism already, right, there's one the reality that there are a whole lot of biases within what fronts as the natural sciences that we've got to contend with, and then two, we've got to contend with the reality that so much that fronts as right, the natural sciences isn't actually European in origins at all whatsoever. So that's another massive, right, historical lie that people in lots of the rest of the world know about, but, right, it's certainly not being taught, right, say in the settler colonial U.S. yet, which is an embarrassing omission, and it doesn't have to be that way. And then thirdly, again, one of the takeaways I really want y'all to pull from this is, right, this encouragement to question narratives about science that can end up getting dominated by corporations or other special interests that flatten intellectual contestation by this right disingenuous appeal to authority that would say, I'm going to tell you what science is you don't get to have questions you don't get to have skepticism and if you disagree you're just anti-science and anti-progress so again super similar to some of the power dynamics that we've talked about earlier this season related to technology also now i know that some of this might have been super theoretical right or maybe theoretically new and so if you'll have any questions or comments based off of what I've shared already, I really encourage you to share them in the chat and we can get into some of it. So please do feel free to do so. And you know, I would also just mention here, I've mentioned the Gregorian calendar a couple of times already. Winona Leduc has also super famously shared a magnificent counter to that, right? So drawing upon within her Anishinaabeg language, right, some, right, approach to timekeeping that is also more active than the Gregorian calendar and that doesn't rely on, right, uplifting the names of these male emperors and having this imperialist fetish baked into something that people pretend is somehow objective or neutral or value-free, right? Right. Carmen Boyer sharing, super interesting. Thank you so much for sharing. You're welcome. Yeah, I really hope y'all are able to scope out, right, some of these resources um, so that you're not just taking it from me, but you're following up to continue, right, learning around some of these areas because, again, so many of these texts are legendary. Um, and again, also, even if you want to look up some of Winona Leduc's lectures where she talks about, right understanding time in part through Anishinaabeg understandings of different moons right that's something that can provide really helpful right alternatives that within the mainstream so often just get bulldozed or get invisibilized so there's not even space for us to really have a substantial dialogue right so for example she has shared that right within the Anishinaabeg language Right. The names of months are in part based off of what you would actually do during those months, like a corn harvesting moon or a wild rice harvesting moon or what the moon looks like during those months from a particular land base or ancestral territory. As in, it's actually a practical Naming system, right? And this is also something that Dr. Sike Raju gets into so specifically when he talks about right European misunderstandings and specifically Greek misunderstandings of calculus, right? <laughs> Based off of right this very intricate and well-documented history of colonizers stealing texts. Right. And then trying to build off of them. But if any of their core presuppositions were faulty, well, then everything that they deduce based off of those presuppositions is going to be erroneous as has been the case historically. Um, so also within right, so many South Asian right, mathematical traditions, there's not the same kind of abstraction. There's a practicality that even makes learning math, for example, much easier than what is the mainstream and Eurocentric learning systems today. So there's a purpose encoded in many of these names, right? And that would help you stay alive if you know it in a very real material sense. And that actually integrates earth-based wisdom instead of just commemorating random dead, usually European cis male emperors. So those are some of the substantially different values encoded into those two naming systems, and that's distinct, isn't it? And even as horrifying as it might be to realize how embarrassingly imperialist and unwise this mainstream calendar is, you know what? We can decouple our understanding of time from imperialism, like Winona Leduc Wright and so many other activists and scholars have encouraged us to do. We can decouple our rhythms from oppression. We can decouple our seasons, our cycles, from domination. And so, right, that's just one example, like starting to scratch the surface of talking about the calendar of so much that we could get into. And you know what is so interesting is unfortunately, right, when conversations come up around, like Raju was naming, the cultural foundations of math, what's that look like in the mainstream today? So often, right, people that are, right, being oppressive unintentionally or intentionally will say, right, you're welcome, Natasha. Oh, this is right, actually anti-intellectual, like we can't even talk about art anymore, right? The quality of everything is going to be reduced because of this PC trash. But the thing is, it actually could not be more, right, the opposite, right, of that if we tried. And what do I mean by that? Again, if people, right, just want to pretend to be neutral, that's a massive impediment to ever having a chance of actually being neutral. And how does this play out today, especially in a super racialized and gendered context? How about, for example, I'll bet some of y'all have noticed this, A lot of white people, say in the settler colonial U.S., take issue with being called white people. They even take issue with people using the phrase white people. And it's in part, right, for a lot of those folks because they still are seduced by this mythology of their objectivity, of them being the norm, right? So even though whites are the statistical minority on Earth, Wow, that's actually also really illogical, isn't it? And it's there who we're supposed to be taking cues about objectivity from? How ridiculous. And that's part of right, what would be hilarious if it wasn't so insulting about overwhelmingly white people talking shit on so-called special interests, quote-unquote, as a way to shut BIPOC up. Because in reality, statistically, they are the minorities. So you see how even the language of so-called minorities and majorities is actually gaslighting within a globalized context, and that whites only became the majority in the settler colonial U.S. because they committed genocide. So please remember that for the rest of your life, every time you hear somebody talk about white people in the U.S. as the alleged majority, when Columbus got lost, on the way to India and accidentally ended up on Turtle Island, were white people the majority? Obviously not. So what happened demographically, so to speak? Genocide, it's literally white terrorist genocide that enables anyone to talk about a so-called white majority. And then white terrorists today are like, oh my God, I'm so afraid of a white genocide. I'm so afraid that our numbers are getting smaller. And so the thing about that is, one, of course, they've got the option of going back to Europe, potentially. But two, you see how hypocritical that is? Do you notice that, too? That their greatest fears are so often getting treated the way that they have treated others. And then what do they do with that fear? They use it to commit even more atrocities, what the fuck, right? Uh, Party sharing institutions that, quote, help, end quote, BIPOC still use the word, quote, minority, end quote. Yeah, it's so problematic and disingenuous, right? And again, so often people, like, it's just statistics, math, you know, objective, but in actuality, you see how we just situated that culturally and historically? There's absolutely nothing objective about that, right? So it's an example of, again, biases getting smuggled and hidden and obscured under the auspices of this right what i call the tyranny of the quantitative people thinking there are numbers it must be objective just wait for our liberation spring class on statistics that some of us have been talking about for a very long time again for people that design research methods and methodologies it's not that simplistic at all whatsoever um and parney you know is one corrective to that a whole lot of folks in the field of, right, kind of like some of the work that Professor Walter Mignolo, right, and Dr. Nelson Maldonado Torres and so many other folks are doing around um, decoloniality. Um, A whole bunch of them use the language of minoritized and have for decades now. So I would really um, encourage that as one substantial alternative. So again, what's going on there? Minoritized, it's a verb, as in, right, people were made to be a minority, or there's some agent, right, even if they are fronting as invisible and like a god, allegedly within this ridiculous, scientific paradigm, and they're telling us that were minorities. That's not the same as calling a group of people a minority, right? Uh, And so I hope that it started to become a little more clear how, right, this scientistic ridiculousness is a substantial impediment to clear perception, right? So just putting this in conversation with some of what we've been getting into all season long about the politics of knowledge here's an area right, that really merits our curiosity around who knows things more broadly too, right? who's capable of knowing, of wisdom, right? of rationale, of logic, and who isn't. There's actually a lot at stake here. As in, if billions of people are invalidated writ large, what's a consequence of that? For one, right, everybody else is potentially deprived of being able to learn from them, which just makes them no less, right? Harming themselves through judging others. Isn't it interesting how that works, right? And so, again, this is kind of like what we've talked about earlier in the season related to epistemologies of ignorance. We could also talk about scientism, right, as an epistemology of ignorance. Its fronting is more legit than any other mode of perception when in actuality it's so ridiculously exclusionary. I mean, it's like someone only speaking English acting like they're smarter than anyone else. If you don't even know what anyone else is saying, can you really make that claim? It's kind of ridiculous, right? G. Sando Sherian, sometimes minoritized and marginalized are utilized interchangeably. Would you speak on this use of language? Thank you. For sure. Yeah, you know, marginalized is also, um, it's. To throw in some jargon, it kind of obfuscates, if you ask me, right? I advocate using the language of oppressed peoples over marginalized any day of the week. And what's up with that also, right? So people kind of like for sure taking it back to Dr. Sandra Harding. She's also done a lot of work around this. Um... There's uh, an epic feminist philosophy anthology that's called um, de the Center that talks about this, right? So a center and a periphery, a core and a periphery, right? There's the core and then there's who is on the margins of the core. This language comes up a lot in different economic discourses, right? Like the core could be the heart of empire, the belly of the beast, and the colonies could be what gets peripheralized, who's on the margins, who's on the periphery. And the thing about that is, who's it still centering? Why is the empire still in the center, right? Or why are overprivileged people still in the center? So that's one of the reasons why y'all will rarely, if ever, hear me use the language of marginalized. Because one, right, again, it's way too innocuous. You're welcome. Um, and again, that center periphery, we need to completely deconstruct all of that if we're going to get, right, more accurate in our languaging, which is why, again, if you look at this decolonial feminist anthology, um, a philosophy anthology called Decentering the Center, that's why it's called Decentering the Center. So if we continue to perpetuate this language of marginality, reality, we're, we have not decentered the center. We're like, oh, let's just hang out in the margins. But in my worldview, we're not the fucking margins. You see what I mean by that? How that's actually a radically different perspective. And that's also why, right, say in the field of um, the politics of madness and sanity, many of y'all say that have come through um, for our liberation spring class on that have heard me share I don't use the language of neurodivergence because in these languages of divergence, as much as they have helped many people, and I'm grateful for that, right? It still continues to center something that's not in the center for so many of our worldviews, right? It's almost like, all right, I guess Eurocentric capitalists, this heteropatriarchy—it just gets to keep being in the center. So let's all play right at the points where we diverge from that mainstream. Right, Eurocentric traditions aren't the mainstream in all of time and space. Right, and so it's actually more self-determined. Right, it's more autonomous when we can set down the notion that that illogical, anti-intellectual Eurocentrism. Is the center, right? So, yeah, that's why, again, y'all for years have not heard me use the language of marginalized, right? We can say, like, people that are being oppressed by these institutions or systems because if not it can get kind of sanitized right and that's one of the reasons why we hear that language being used say in the nonprofit industrial complex and other spaces where people would be afraid to use the word oppressed because they think oh maybe that'll turn off the funders maybe that sounds a little too edgy oh edgy right kind of like being on the margins right it's something that especially, right, as an insurgent intellectual like myself, working independently. That's why I have even more of a responsibility to be more accurate in my languaging because so many of our loved ones in the academy, right, engage in that nonprofit speak that actually obfuscates. It makes it harder for people to perceive power dynamics where they exist because it is sanitizing violence, right, and we need to stop doing that with our language so people can understand better. Uh, and so lots of other right, um, areas for us to delve into in subsequent weeks. Um, instead of neurodivergence, um, to answer that question, um, I have been playing in the past few years with the language of lunacy because kind of like what we were talking about related to moons earlier, at least that's grounded in the Earth, the Earth's moon more specifically. And more broadly, right, just naming how ridiculous Right, ridiculously limiting and oppressive to be more specific mainstream approaches to psychology, psychiatry, and mental health are, um, and then remembering and imagining otherwise, right? Maybe remembering our ancestral traditions and then imagining based off of that what has more accuracy. And sometimes that includes things that don't sound explicitly like mental health jargon, right? Like, ooh, housing, right, would be helpful for people's well-being and psychic states. Like healthcare would be great. Decolonization would be really helpful for a lot of our psychic States. So also sometimes it involves invoking language that isn't consistent with how these right mainstream conversations have been framed up for us. Right. Uh, And so to begin to wrap things up, I would also just share and we'll talk about this more later um, to be on the lookout for that right rationalism and empiricism right, as two staples of this scientistic bias that we've been getting into, right? So they would say, if I can't see it or count it, it doesn't exist, right? So to put those two little theories into context, rationalism and empiricism, it's important for us to remember that there are many theories of knowledge, right? When was their ascendance? We can historicize that thinking that reason, that logic, and that things that can be counted are more truthful than anything else. Where did that come from? Appreciate those words, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, Right? And It's what in Eurocentrism gets called the Enlightenment period, and right, as a South Asian, it's hilarious, right, them thinking that something was enlightened about that time period, that would be quaintly naive if it wasn't so deadly, right, I call it the Western European so-called Enlightenment period, again, in the spirit of that accuracy that we were talking about earlier, um, so that we can cede, right context and nuance into our languaging, and so that our imagination isn't insulted with the notion that that horrific time period right, had anything to do with enlightenment. Right? And frankly, maintaining that lie that's so common in status quo storytelling is also an insult to those of us whose ancestors and those of us who today actually take seriously rigor and knowing and wisdom, right? So to be continued around those pieces later in the season, um, although it is actually just about time for us to begin wrapping up, Uh, And so I would just want to really encourage y'all to say in the next week, if you're up for it, be on the lookout for, right, scientism at play, especially if it might be doing any kind of bullying or shutting down curiosity in any areas within your life. Appreciate those words, Grace. and as we begin to wrap up, um, in closing, as usual, hope to see y'all for some seating on Saturday. Feel free to share out if you imagine that this could be beneficial to anyone that you know. Um, please cite your sources if you want to quote me. Um, and if you're able to kick down Any kind of funds via Patreon or PayPal so that we can continue on with this kind of insurgent intellectual production, that would be super appreciated. We don't have grant funding from institutions that only lets us ask certain questions and in certain kinds of ways here. So to be able to keep that going, right, y'all support is legit, uh, absolutely indispensable. Thank you for those kind words, Parni. Appreciate that. So out of respect for y'all's time, we can go ahead and close. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see y'all on Saturday. Is ours, yeah. is That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadia, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervascio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil, deceitful and coward, people in power, all power to the people, it's the hour of the peaceful, freedom is ours, yeah, freedom is ours.